Take My Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Jake Hill. And I'm Elias Rosner. And this week we're beginning our discussion of the Annihilation Saga. Excelsior. Wow, Elias, you read that like someone wrote the title of this comic in all caps. It's the only way to read it. I mean, it, isn't that true of every big event at Marvel? Uh, they like to think that. I don't think it's really true, but they like to think it. Oh, uh, so so should I have read it like Stanley? The Annihilation Saga. Wow, I actually think your Stanley is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, true believer. You got that real uh, Lower East Side Carnival marker. <laughs> Um, I'm very excited to start this, Elias. As you know, as our readers may have gleaned, if they're uh, loyal month-in and month-out readers, this entire run of comics is one of my favorites. It's one of the ones that got me in to Marvel when I was getting back into things in college, uh, which is when this was coming out for me. And um, while it starts off on kind of a note that I don't think best represents the peak that it's going to hit, uh, I still had like a blast going back to this and reading it for the first time in years. And this is my first time encountering, I think, every single one of these comics. I don't think I've read any issue in any of what we're going to be covering. So, for those who may have missed it last time, we are going to be covering what is known as the Annihilation Saga, which begins, or began with Annihilation Drax, which is a miniseries, and continued for another, what was it, six, seven years uh, the Annihilation Saga kicks off, uh, Drax comes out in February of 2006, and the final issue and what we're going to be covering, uh, even though being comics you can define it in many ways, yeah. uh, is a series called The Thanos Imperative. I believe the last issue was a one-shot called Thanos Imperative Devastation, and that came out in January of 2011. Alright, so, so that's, yeah, six, seven years. Yeah, something like it. Um... And this whole saga is most important for it was a big reboot of Marvel's space characters, uh, which eventually gives rise to the franchise that's built around the Guardians of the Galaxy. Because before this, the Guardians of the Galaxy uh, didn't exist in the incarnation we knew now. Rocket Raccoon and Star-Lord and Gamora weren't part of the team. Weren't uh, they even... some, like, not an alternate universe type thing, but they were set in the year 3000, and they were basically Bill Mantelo and... Uh his crew fucking around in the same way they did with Micronauts. Yeah, it was a real fuck around comic in that way. Um, <laughs> I I think it, the idea was it was kind of a Legion of Superheroes ripoff. A lot of the Marvel guys in the 70s are uh, outspoken big fans of DC's Legion of Superheroes, which you know DC better than me. Uh, Legion of Superheroes is what, the, the 40th century? Uh, the 31st century. The 30th, first century. And I, so I think uh, Marvel's original Guardians is the 40th century. And it's like a similar deal. It's like a far future superhero franchise with lots of members. Um, and mm. what we're going to read is going to touch upon that. You'll, like, you'll see the influence and in characters being foreshadowed, their future selves, and there's going to be time travel. Um, we'll get into that. But the Marvel space stuff that you know now, where Star-Lord is kind of the main hero... Thanos is the main bad guy, and there's all these different supporting characters. That starts in what we are reading for this episode. All right. Before we get further in, I think we need to address the elephant in the room that has been around for a few episodes, but... Why do you say Thanos? And not Thanos? Thanos? With a Y. I say Thanos? Yes. Um, 
That's a great question. It's definitely not authentic to the Greek Thanatos. I guess that's the reason is Thanatos is a character in Marvel. He shows up in Incredible Hercules and stuff. Um, and uh, I like distinguish. Probably the reason I say it that way was started off as a mistake. I'm sure someone's pointed it out to me and I've forgotten. But for me, I like having the distinction between Thanos, the Mad Titan, and Thanatos, the Greek god of death, who is, as I mentioned, a Marvel character. I think they've even met each other before. I, I could believe that. And they're probably going to meet each other again, considering right now Al Ewing is messing around with the Greek pantheon. Yeah, I'm surprised he hasn't gotten more mileage out of that. But what do I know? Yeah, I think he's, he's just bringing it back. That's uh, interesting with uh, because I have probably been saying that name wrong, too, because I always said Thanatos. <laughs> well, I am in no way Greek or an authority on uh, Greek <laughs> pronunciations. Yeah, but Thanatos pretty... seems more correct. Um, I'm pretty sure I say Hephaestus. I don't know how it's supposed to be said. <laughs> Um, All our Greek listeners, please write in and tell us how poorly we're messing these names up. I have a friend who is an authority on this who I should ask. Uh, I don't think she would appreciate being annoyed for pronunciation questions, though. (laughs) Anyway, uh, Elias, what's your experience with this corner of Marvel Cosmic? Like, uh, are you a fan of the Guardians of the Galaxy movie? Which runs of the comics have you read? Is this your first time in? So... The Guardians of the Galaxy, I was first introduced to them, like I think a lot of people, with the movie. Uh, and I actually I have this vivid memory of sitting in our computer lab in high school. And one of my friends, and like we'd been, I'd been here, I'd been following the Marvel movie stuff. Uh, I hadn't really read any of the comics at that point. And we had just been hearing the names and we're like, Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm like, eh, I don't know, what's that? I don't know who they are, whatever. And the first trailer dropped. My friend pulled it up on YouTube and put it on the screen. And we must have watched this like six or seven times because we were just like, this is what a Marvel movie could look like. It was fun. It was weird. We had no idea what to expect. And it got us super hyped. It's kind and I loved the movie. I was very hyped like- with the movie. It's got this kind of like spit in your eye punk uh, feel to it. That first trailer had the uh, the hooked on a feel and Uga Chakas played really menacingly. I remember that was really cool. Yeah, but it I just... remember I they announced mm-hmm. that movie on July fourth, a year or two before it came out. Uh, I had recently graduated college, I believe, or was about to, and I was mm-hmm. hanging out with some friends, um, and. Uh, they announced that they're doing a Comic-Con, a Guardians of the Galaxy movie, and I got so hyped because I was following this comic, and I it, it, this and it was clearly, uh, they mentioned Star-Lord and Groot. It was going to be an adaptation of this stuff. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. And then it wasn't. Well, it is and it isn't. It's definitely an adaptation of this comic, but as a, a theme for me is, I feel like the movies take on a slightly different vibe, like, uh, we'll get into it soon, but this is like epic political space opera stuff. This is huge, and planets are uh, under threat from these giant armies and stuff, and it's less of like a plucky firefly crew of blue-collar space yokels yeah. uh, cruising around and getting into trouble. Although, as we'll see, there's a bunch of that that's going to happen, too. Yeah, and the movie definitely adopted some of that post the Avengers Whedonisms. Oh, I got a lot to say about that um... because that kind of, and which it un- unfortunately has defined much of the MCU since 
coming out. Uh, I think that's why Ant-Man kind of got, even though I love Ant-Man, I love that movie. It kind of got, you know, it kind of got the shaft because of the success of the Avengers and the other MCU stuff there and creative differences between Edgar Wright and them uh, and Disney. But we're putting aside the movies. Uh, as far as the rest of Marvel Cosmic, I this stuff, it's almost entirely uh, unknown to me. Uh, I mean, I've read some current Nova stuff with Sam Alexander. Not a lot. Uh, and... Yeah, most of most of my experience with the Guardians were the movies, and then Chip Zdarsky's Star Lord solo that got unfairly canceled. Oh, love that 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 miniseries was fantastic. Yeah, uh, um, and I'm a huge fan of the what is the current run of uh, Al Ewing on Guardians. I think he is finally playing with the tools that uh, are first invented for this series. Mm-hmm. In a big way. We'll talk. Yeah. The, my, my feelings about the movies and the comics and the differences, like, really color my feelings on this run in general. <laughs> I, I'm sure you won't have to push me to talk about it. But for now, we are going to start by talking about Annihilation Drax, which is a miniseries, as I mentioned, from 2006, written by Keith Giffen, illustrated by uh, Mitch Breitweiser, colored by Brian Reber, and lettered by VCs Corey Petit. Uh, then we're going to take a break, and then we're going to talk about Annihilation Prologue, which is a one-shot, and we're going to talk about Annihilation Nova, number no- one to four, which is uh, another mini, and that's uh, going to be the beginning of the first part of our coverage. Oh uh, yeah. So, so uh, I guess to start, we should talk a little bit about some of the creators of this Drax miniseries. Uh, most notably, the writer Keith Giffen, who at the beginning of this is like obviously the guy in charge until he gets kind of quietly... Uh, phased out which uh uh, unfortunately is not much of a surprise um not much of a surprise so keith giffen just in case uh if you need a refresher or you don't know like elias are you a big keith giffen fan i i think i wouldn't call myself a big keith giffen fan but i am aware of keith giffen he i mean he did the breakdowns for the entirety of my favorite dc series 52 i also Uh, love 52 i'm so glad you that's my favorite dc series as well and Hey, uh, there are a bunch of commentaries on this stuff, but like Keith Given was like they wanted someone to keep everything consistent, so I came in. Uh, and right, there are and a whole a... host of artists on that on those books, but his breakdowns helped the whole thing feel cohesive. And I think we we often talk about uh, like comic journeymen and craftsmen who are like uh, more workman like than artist like in their approach, and how that's not always a bad thing. Like that's that's a really yeah. cool style. And Giffen best exemplifies that because that series could have spun wildly out of control, and just like his organizational skill and his easy to work withness, I think, like really helped organize this team of big personalities. And then Giffen was just like, no, no, I can I can make the boat run smoothly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I um, also know that he, he's he been around forever and a day. Uh, I did not know, uh, which we have in our notes, is that he co-created Rocky Raccoon with Bill Mandelow. I did not know that. Uh, yeah, I did not know that either. It came up when I was uh, trying to remind myself. Because I, I know that Giffen um, wrote other people's characters more than he created his own. Yeah. Um, he always notably, had a lot of fun with it, clearly. Yeah, I, I always... Thing, when I was a kid, Keith Giffen was the name I associated with Lobo, who he created. <laughs> and, like, Lobo was cool when I was a kid in the 90s. Um, he He's still cool, si- but as a 90s character. 
Yeah, well, uh, they figured out how to make Lobo still funny. And he, Lobo was funny then, too. But yeah, co-creating Rocket Raccoon's a big deal because that was that that 70s miniseries that introduces Rocket is um, considered now to be like a lost gem and it's uh, got a lot of artistic merits. Uh, but I and Giffen wrote a famous run of Legion of Superheroes, which we've already been talking about a little bit, which is a mm-hmm. popular... Uh, fans favorite uh dc series but for my money besides the comics that we'll be discussing in this series um giffen's big claim to fame is justice league international which is like a seminal comic which completely changes everything for superhero comics yeah i i think if anyone's gonna know him from anything it's that which i think he co-wrote as well as drawing with uh jm dematius i think that's how it's pronounced i've heard dematius but yeah that, that would, it might JM. be dematius uh, they yeah they co-wrote it. There was uh, I think they also contributed art here and there, um, and there was a legion of other artists on it. But Justice League International is cool because it was the first superhero like workplace sitcom. It was a comedy through and through. It had comedy beats, and like when you read it today, it's much closer to like The Office or Parks and Rec than it is to any other like an Avengers movie. Yeah. Um, which is weird because, as I'm going to talk about more later in this series, um, Giffen's not really bringing the funny stuff. Like, uh, his comedy seems really toned down, and it's other writers who are bringing that light action comedy tone. Yeah. Uh, uh, just, I don't have much else to say. I haven't actually read any of his Justice League International stuff. Oh, even it's though like it is so seminal. <laughs> You, you, uh, if you ever get the chance, you should uh, check it out. It's like, uh, I haven't read the whole run, but I've read issues here and there, and they're very, they're genuinely funny, and they still make me laugh today. That's good. It's There's always a, a hesitance to go back to books that were very comedic in times gone by. Because you never know if they're going to hold up, or if you're going to read something, it's like, mmm. It's a lot of, it's character humor, and I think character humor uh, ages better than a lot of other stuff. It's big personality. It's, it's Batman punching uh, Guy Gardner in the face. <laughs> Is the famous comedy. Uh, you can you can never get enough of that. Exactly. Even for uh, Guy Gardner fans. <laughs> yeah, well, if you're a Guy Gardner fan, you know he deserves to get punched in the face. Yeah. Um, uh, I found a pronunciation. Also... I found How do you it. pronounce this? Yeah. So he he's like it can either be Demateus or uh, Dematis. Okay. I'm going to nice. stick with Dimiteus then, because that's what I've heard on other podcasts, mm-hmm. um, which is where I get most of my comics pronunciation tips from. And we is... probably won't be saying his name much more because he's not on any of the teams. Right. He's just an old friend of um, Giffen, who we'll talk about a bit more. Um, we also, I guess, are obligated to talk about Mitch Breitweiser. Yeah. Um, so this morning, guys, when Elias was uh, finishing up the issues, he was uh, texting me about uh, Mitch Breitweiser, and I just like got a tone from he. I could tell. I Elias was telling me the, the ways in which he didn't like the the art, which is fair because it's very ugly. This Drax miniseries, gotcha. um, and uh, but the tone made me think there was something more. So I did some poking around, and indeed, it seems that while. Uh, Mitch Breitweiser uh, may or may not be an enthusiastic member of the Comics Gate uh, hate movement. He is certainly sympathetic to their aims and uh, and then fucks with them in a way that uh, is disappointing to learn when you like a comic and it turns out that somebody is part of a hate movement. It also turns out that yeah. he is a uh, out and proud Trump voter, uh, 
which uh, for some people might be an immediate deal breaker and for some people it might not. But I think with everything that I learned about Brightweiser, he seems like an extremely unsavory dude who doesn't even have the artistic talent to make me care to see anything else he's ever done. So Mitch Brightweiser gets a big thumbs down from me in real life and in comics life. And that's all we have to say about that. Yeah, and I was like trying to find like real information. I, I would be interested in talking about it more, but it's a lot of uh, rumors and speculation and Rich Johnson writing on Bleeding Cool, and none of that makes me <laughs> confident that we have a, a strong enough source uh, to like really get into the nuance of why this dude sucks, but I'm pretty confident to say that I think he sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... And then we've got two other people who we don't know as much about because they have more private lives. But Brian Reber and, Reber, uh, and Corey Petit both work houses. They've been doing coloring and lettering respectively for years and years and years and years. And they always do a good job. Maybe not Reber this so much in this series, but that's I, okay. Uh... He's done better work. And uh, Corey Petit is uh, one of those uh, prolific letters. He's part of, uh, what is it, Virtual Calligraphy is what VC stands yeah. for? Yeah. He's part of the Virtual Calligraphy Studio, which is pretty much letters, I would say, like 95% of all comics pr- published in America. They probably do 90%? a it's like... smaller percentage because Comic Craft is still pretty big. Uh, and then you've got all the a few other independent. But I think Clayton Cowles, I think... He, he accounts for 50% of the lettered books anyway, so... Yeah, right, by himself. But So that yeah. studio, uh, VC, um, does a lot of the lettering. I love Corey Petit's work. I've met a couple of the VC people, and they're all, like, really uh, pleasant to talk to, nice-seeming folks. So uh, I kind of, like, assume that Corey Petit's like that, but I love his work. I think that his lettering... He can do... Just those VC people, they can do it all. Yeah. I do have to say... Uh, as much as I like his work, I do not like the Alien script. Oh my god, I'm so happy to hear that because oh I have thought about it's... that, and we're going to talk about it. Yeah, well, ugh. So let's let's get into Drax specifically, the Drax miniseries. So Drax the Destroyer uh, is a character that is now best known from the Guardians of the Galaxy comics and movies, but that incarnation of the character is very far removed from how he originally appeared in the 70s. Yeah, and in the 70s he had this big purple cape, and he looked like... Pretty much most of the other space heroes in that it's just trapeze artists in space. Right, although Drax is definitely modeled after the Hulk. He's got green skin, he's very strong, and he's also um, not very bright. He's often like easily fooled or driven to emotional outbursts, and he kind of talks in like a childlike, uh, me, Drax kind of way. I, I, I saw that and I'm like, is Giffen just writing Hulk light? Well, that's what Drax was, and this was this miniseries here is the big tra- uh, Drax is going to go through a couple of big transitions, but this is like the big transition Sox into Drax. Yeah, well, and Drax with the he's got the red tribal tattoos and he fights with knives and he's just like a tough guy now. Yeah. Um, that Dave Bautista is eventually going to play, but yeah, uh, before this, and we don't have to worry too much about Drax before this miniseries, but I think it's interesting that uh, that's kind of the purpose of this mini. Um. And so we start off kind of in media res, we're on a prison transport ship, and we're heading to the Kiln, which is a location that appears in the Guardians movies, um, and it is a prison facility slash power plant. Like, Eli, what do you think the, What do you think of the Kiln so far? Because I'm going to fill you in on some details in a second. Uh, 
when it was introduced here, I'm just like, oh, space prison planet, they're on their way, but they accidentally crash on Earth because reasons? I was never, I wasn't quite clear why in the series. They, I think it was just a malfunction on the ship. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and they, crashed, they crashed to Earth, were introduced to Drax, the Blood Brothers, uh, some scroll named Pybok, and Lunatic, who feels very 90s and like uh todd mcfarland could have been drawing him that's that's also funny so first of all i just want to mention that it's very funny that early in this miniseries they spell it uh the kiln k-y-l-n and the clin alternatively they mess it up a bunch of times oh oh okay so they did screw that up i was like (laughs) i saw the clin a million times i'm like am i just reading this wrong is there something else whatever it's like dyslexic gaslighting by the lettering. Yeah. I, the I bet the script had it in different ways because it's a stupid name. It's a pretty stupid name. But the, it's a cool idea, and I feel like it's a real uh, example of how Giffen approaches sci-fi. Cause, so the kiln is this facility, and it's built at the edge of the known universe, right? The universe like starts with the Big Bang, and it's expanding outwards. So mm-hmm. the kiln is the outermost border of how far the reality has extended in the Marvel Universe. And the churn of energy at that huh. edge of that is what generates the power. And then they're, they're using prison labor in, like, unsavory ways that uh, other Giffen comics have uh, had political commentary on. But, like, so prisoners are being forced to work in this wacky cosmic power plant that gets into what was, like, cutting-edge theoretical physics when this comic was coming out. And I think that's all neat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did not pick up on any of that. Well, a lot of this is I've read. Um, there was a Th- uh, Thanos Thanos series that was running um, prior to this uh, that I've read before. It's just like my love for this series has made me read some pretty obscure stuff, and gotcha. the film shows up in a bunch of that. It's also very funny that you referred to Pybok as um, some scroll because Pybok is like a classic Fantastic Four villain. He and Scroll <laughs> go back to the sixties. Uh, He's just some scroll. He's Pybok the Power Scroll, and uh, he's kind of the main villain in this. You got the Blood Brothers, who are an alien duo who uh, first uh, debuted in Iron Man, but uh, they've been on and off just like lame Avengers alien villains here and there. And then the other funny thing you said was that Lunatic uh, seemed like a real 90s McFarlane riff, because get this, Mm -hmm. this is Lunatic's first and only appearance. Wait, seriously? Introduced for this miniseries, and I don't think he survives it. I think he dies. No, he's he's killed uh, about three issues in, I think. Yeah, yeah, so he's just set up to be some uh, one-off villain for Drax to kill. Uh, but he's got, like, a lot wow. of personality, actually. He's got a cool... Like, his visual design's, like, a little over much, and you're right, it's 90s, but he's not 90s. He's from 2006. Dang. So I think that the um, that visual style was at least somewhat important, and I'm into it. It's silly, though. It was very silly. But, um, I mean, distinctive and silly is better than bland and forgettable. Yeah, Definitely. And like you said, they're all lettered in this distinctive way. Um, that, but it wasn't working for you. No, no. I, I did. I liked the choice to rim every one of the. Uh, what's it called? To to kind of indicate who's talking. There are different colors and kind of and uh, not staticky, but you can tell which character is talking. Which I wonder if Petit did that because you know, the characters all look... God, they look like ass. 
Yeah, they're all pretty blobby. Uh, they have different colors. I mean, I think what the um, it feels letters... it feels like he used three D models and then painted over it. Yeah, it's got a real like PlayStation One cutscene vibe. Yeah. Um, I think the lettering, though, the weird borders are supposed to look like alien script, and it's supposed yeah. to represent that it's like a universal translator acting. They're all speaking different alien languages, and that's how we know it's being translated. Because Drax, um, his, he's got the same uh, alien-looking font with, like, the extra dots inside of some of the letters and, like, these weird accents. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't have that border. He has, like, a normal speech balloon border. Yeah. So I, I think he's—it's implied he's speaking English with an alien accent. Everyone else is speaking their alien language. Yeah, and when all the other characters speak English with the alien accent, <laughs> uh, it looks in the same way. Or French, or whatever other language uh, Pybok tries. Oh, yeah. um, but I, I like that. I think that's a fun creative decision right away, yeah. and it gives um, it, it gives you like a fun space flavor that you're not getting in uh, other stuff, even though aliens are showing up in any any Marvel book. Yeah, I just don't think the font choice was super legible. I definitely had, I actually had trouble reading some of the balloons, and especially when you combine that with that outside border stuff, it starts to look really cluttered. Uh, it reminds me of the old Thor fonts, the old Asgardian fonts. It's just, there's a lot of dots in the middle of words, and it's archaic in a way that doesn't look, that is, that isn't clear. Sure. Uh, so. I, 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 um. I'm never as uh, sorry. There's a cat running by. If you can't tell, um, I'm never as uh, as sensitive to this sort of thing as you are. So I'm always interested to learn what font choices you respond to. Yeah, and um, th- this is this isn't a. I've seen this font before. I'm sure in other Marvel books where they're speaking generic alien language, uh, but it's being translated for us, the audience, so we can understand yeah. it. Um. Yeah, not an uncommon technique, but I just I like the uh, the balloons is what I really like the color coded balloons with the little squiggles on the outside. Yeah. I think that's a fun thing that they could bring back. I would be into that. Yeah. I also, I really like Pybok in this miniseries. I thought his characterization was really good. He was super scary. You get the idea, just like that casual scroll supremacist attitude that you see in a lot of scroll villains, and then um, halfway through he has a wardrobe change and he puts on like a tailored suit that he steals from somebody and the yeah. On Earth, and he looks great. I mean, like the artist will ask, but like, what a cool like a scroll wearing a suit and very politely threatening to kill your whole family is such a good scary villain to start us off with. Yeah, small small stakes, but um, but it sells the menace. Pybok is probably the standout character in this entire series, which includes Drax. I don't find him particularly interesting here, but we're here to talk more. What happens? Less. Why, why the art looks like ass. <laughs> I mean, that's, there's room for that conversation, too. <laughs> um, but okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the ship crashes down on Earth. So I just want to spend a second talking about um, the transition of Drax. Because, so, if you saw the movie uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, Drax just seems like he's an out-and-out alien. He talks about his home world. He's just, like, alien from space, right? Yeah, alien from space, sad, dead family story off on a revenge mission because Thanos. Yeah. Did you know that Drax was a human named Arthur Douglas? I knew that because I had... It was in 
It was in some series. I think it was when I read like the Black Mirror crossover thing. There was something weird with with Jerry Duggan's run, and I just yeah. remember Saxtrax, and then Saxtrax. I was gonna ask Saxtrax. He dies, yes. uh, and then he's off in heaven for a while, and then someone brings him back because no one can stay dead in comics. Well, so in 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 Arthur Douglas's first appearance, which was in an Iron Man issue in the seventies, uh, he is driving with his family. Uh, he's like a real estate agent. He likes to play the sax on weekends. He like wears Hawaiian shirts and is real cheesy. He doesn't <laughs> seem like a cool guy who you'd want to be friends with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they just see a spaceship in the air, and he gets distracted and loses control of the car, and he goes off the road. Um, and that's the first appearance of Thanos. Um, hmm. is that spaceship landing. And this is just like some collateral background damage. But very quickly, we learn that Mentor, who is uh, Thanos' dad, uh, recreates Drax and gives him the powers of the Destroyer, which is one of those like weird, vague Marvel things that never really gets clearly defined. But there's a little detail that I've always held with me, which is that uh, he rebuilds Drax's body from the Earth. It's like a line that he says, huh. and in the original image of this happening, it looks like uh, he's being rebuilt out of, like, clay or dirt or something. Um, and I always really internalize that because I think it's cool that Drax has, like, you know, like, Gaia Force in him that gives him his powers and is of the Earth. I always thought that was super cool. One of the reasons why I think that changed to make him just an alien in the movies is lame. And mm-hmm. when he uh, returns to Earth for presumably the first time uh, since he left it to go be a destroyer— um, the like contacting Earth soil is what uh, ch- changes him again. He gets murdered, and then they leave him in the dirt, and then he gets like re- he gets reborn through this like cocoon thing. Oh. Flipping through the pages, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, what... yeah. No, he he. It's not a cocoon. I mean, it is a cocoon, but it, he just looks dead, and then he starts smoking, and then he explodes out of his old chonk body, uh, and becomes new, thinner with tattoos and can actually speak in full sentences yeah much more similar to the drax that we know i think the explanation is given it's because he was killed here and because he was made but also because he had like ingested all of this weird time fuel stuff (laughs) what was it called uh there was there was something Pybok is making fun of him because he's like, he's so stupid, he's drinking gasoline. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And that's all great comic book malarkey. Yeah. Um, Then the other main character who we definitely need to talk about in some detail in this is Cammy, who is a character who has been in some comics, but this is her first appearance. Uh, You got a a take on Cammy right off the bat? I feel like Cammy's not for you, is my prediction. You would be correct. At least not how Giffen writes Cammy. Oh um, my god. Yeah, I feel like you don't like these like tough, tough as nails, uh, like ur- urchin kids who follow around the superheroes and uh, are just like kind of nasty with them. Have like a sarcastic sense of humor. That's not your vibe at all. It's not really my vibe, and it's like triple not my vibe. Oh, there are people running upstairs. <laughs> it's triple not my vibe because I've seen it so much. Like, this was the go-to character in the early 2000s. The disaffected teen who's ironic with everything. And half the time it feels like a parody of that character. Uh, and 
that's what Cammy felt like to me. It didn't feel genuine, and I just got I I was like Cammy, rolling my eyes every time she said something. <laughs> uh, I was like, I, I, all right. I wonder, I'm a little older than you, and I wonder if this is just, like, I'm closer to when this was actually cool instead of, like, uh, cringe. Because uh, this is such a Gen X character, even though she's not. She's But I, re- I know people who are exactly like Cammy, And I remember... You don't like them either. I remember, I remember seeing TV shows and movies and all that with this character in it meant to be the cool one and was the cool <laughs> one. And depending on the writer, your mileage will vary. And yeah. I think Keith didn't quite get it. Um, yeah, she's not my favorite example of this, but I like Cammy from her first introduction, and she stays pretty... This is kind of her character, and she, you're, if you don't mm. like her now, I don't think you're going to turn around on her. Maybe she gets some better zingers in later, but she's yeah. always very disaffected. Um, but I, I like uh, Cammy's introduction. So first of all, Cammy is short for Camille Benelli, which I had to look up. I think they've mentioned this on page like once in the comics. Um, she's going to be sort of a, a player throughout this Annihilation saga, more or less at different times. But where she uh, really shines is she is one of the main characters in a series I love dearly, which is Avengers Arena by uh, Dennis Hopeless Halem. Mm-hmm. Did you ever read uh, Arena? No, no. It, it, you've been asking me f- since you first brought it up, and the answer is still... Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, I would have asked that. Yeah, well, Avengers Arena is, um, for our listeners, is like a Hunger Games thing where a bunch of kid Marvel heroes are put onto an island and told they have to kill each other. And one of those heroes is Cammy, and she's got like a ray gun and a jetpack now. And they really make mm. her out to be like um, maybe the Marvel take on, uh, on Adam Strange or something. Hmm. Or like Flash Gordon. She's like a yeah. real, uh, just like two fisted, spaceship stealing. Uh, anti-hero who's like going off through space and uh is a little lawless and i i think that's a fun development for her and she was also a player in that guardians run that you were just talking about by uh duggan oh interesting Duggan. She, sh- uh, she shows up in the infinity warps and the infinity wars oh yeah i remember um, nothing from that that's where drax came back yeah that's that's where drax came back uh cammy is um we see a little bit of her home life in this. The, the the aliens from the spaceship crash into Coots Bluff, Alaska, which is a population of just a couple thousand. Um, and they really terrorize this town for a couple days before, like, law enforcement can show up. And Cammie, we see that her home life is crappy. She comes from this, like, terrible, abusive home. Her mom's an alcoholic and very neglectful. And, yeah, her uh, mom literally doesn't care when Pybok and whoever tearing up the streets. Cammie's there, and someone's like, is that your daughter? And she's like... I think she calls uh, Cammie a little tramp. Yeah. And just uh, uh, takes a swig of beer and walks off. Yeah, I don't know if if she or someone else, I think it's in that same scene, uh, drops the R word, and I'm like, oh, higher 2000s. We really liked saying that. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, And yikes. Big yikes to that. Um, Big yikes. But I, I, I really, while it's not my favorite mode of comic book storytelling, I actually think Giffen does more, uh, like a pretty good job. He really sells me on Cammy's crummy home life and uh, the town of Coots Bluff 
seems like a really real town to me. Like, uh, yeah. I have had an opportunity to visit the state of Alaska once before, and uh, I found it really beautiful, and I found Juneau to be an incredible city. But, like, there's a lot of these little towns, and I couldn't help but smile and think, like, there's definitely a Cammy here who can't wait to leave th- this fucking town behind and go off and be a dirtbag in space. <laughs> um, I mean, where else would you want to be a dirtbag? Space is the best place to be a dirtbag, and yeah. small-town Alaska, one of the worst. And Katie oh, yeah. is so determined to be a dirtbag that uh, that she, like, goes off on this adventure. So I just – I really found find that even um, – there's – this miniseries, it does not represent the tone of the series overall, but I think it's such an interesting prologue because it's so small stakes, and Giffen makes the um, the setting feel so vibrant. Yeah. it. I'm – I didn't particularly like it, but it – it's hard not to i remembered a lot of it when i finished which is something i can't say about a bunch of other stuff that's been coming out from marvel and dc or even like independent works and whatnot this is just this was a book that not a lot happened necessarily but whatever what did happen was interesting and enjoyable and i don't know it 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 was what you want from a miniseries. Yeah, it feels appropriately additive. Like, yeah. if there if there was a future Captain America story where the, he was fighting a bad guy in the town of Coots Bluff, Alaska, I would get really excited that we were ma- returning to that location and that we were telling stories there because it seems like... Um, it, 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 uh, it's not the same as Wakanda, obviously, but it just seems like it's got such a... There's stories to be told. Of, yeah. like, and it's small the, town. The, kind of the right setting for a long-running series... It's like you've got, sure, you could have stories that have these huge stakes, but not everything needs to be big. And like some of my favorite, for some of my favorite arcs or, or you know, couple issues from long running series have been those types of adventures. Like I've been recently working my way through all of Hellblazer. Love all of Hellblazer. Great series to work all the Every way so often, I'll just get to two issues where he's fucking about. There's a ghost on a farm in the middle of Scotland, and Oh my that's god, one it. of my favorites. One of my favorite stories. I, you're in a good part of Hellblazer. Hellblazer <laughs> is, like, uh, obviously I'm more of a Marvel guy than a DC guy, but Hellblazer is one of my all-time favorite comics. I, I love bad Hellblazer. I love good Hellblazer. It's just pizza for me. <laughs> um... But okay, so Pybok tries to uh, Pybok immediately kind of smugly is like, "Well, take me to your leader, I guess." And what I love about Pybok's evil plan here is, you can tell that he knows that this is like small potatoes. He's like, "I guess I'll take over this tiny Alaska town," but it's kind of a baller move because he's just like, "Well, if you find yourself in a small Earth town, you do villain shit. That's what you do when you're a scroll." Yeah, and, and um, he's also like, "This isn't even his goal. His goal is to just get off the planet and go." He's just like, I just want to leave. Nothing good happens on Earth, ever. Yeah, he's just like, Earth is where Skrulls go to get their asses kicked. And I know if we, like, make trouble here, it'll be really fun, but the Avengers will show up eventually. Yeah, so he's um, just like, I'm gone. Let me, let, let's me let fix this ship. Can't I, I, do it like, on our own? Well, I'll conscript this entire town. How do I threaten them? Uh, lunatic, kill that old woman. Yeah. Um, and again, like, uh, the, while the art doesn't sell it, I really like Lunatic's design. I like that his, like, mop of hair in his eyes, and I like that he's got these spots on him that are darker than anything else on the page, so they look, like, darker than Shadow. You, like, yeah. you look like you could, like, fall into him, like he's a, like, uh, like how they draw Cloak from Cloak and Dagger sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and Cammy, um, 
just remains like dauntless throughout this. They keep on threatening her. She keeps on, uh, and you get the feeling that a little bit of it is she's so desperate and depressed that she's just like, whatever, I don't care if I live or die. But like, she is a brave kid. And I, I think that that's, again, it's not my favorite idea for a story, but I think Giffen executes it really, really, really well. I think he writes Cammy well, and I, um, she seems believably brave and plucky and a little bit manic. Yeah. She is also an entire cliche. Yeah. <laughs> Which, she isn't. at the time, may not have been... Like, we've got 14, 15 years on this comic now, so either it's 14, 15 more years to see this character... And I'm wondering if the character landed better in 2006 uh, than it did to me coming to it for the first time now. Because the entire time, all I could think was like, Cammy kind of sucks. Dex is a dweeb. <laughs> Dex is such and a dweeb. And putting the two together, I'm just like, wow, Dex just can't catch a break. I kind of feel bad for Dex. I'm about he to is... say, feeling bad for Dex is the most Elias read on this series. <laughs> Um, what did you think of Cammy as a foil for Drax, though? Like, do you think that they, uh, they're too similar or that they bring out cool stuff in each other? I don't think we've seen enough. Uh, okay. I, th- I think in this miniseries, they, it's just, they serve an interesting, uh, no, not, not in this series. I think because we read more, I, I think they have a better foil relationship later here it's by the time we actually get you know them actually working off each other it's in the middle of battles and then we cut we end up with them in space yeah and i do have to mention one of the most 2060 parts of this is that uh most of the story of this like it's hard to go ploppy by plot beat because a lot of it's like and then they fight in the woods and then they fight in the town yeah and, then and they fight it in the basically trees. happens they crash and then we spend two and a half issues of drax fighting in in like a round robin the blood brothers lunatic the blood brothers lunatic the blood brothers lunatic and then drax dies and then he comes back and fights the blood brothers lunatic and pibok <laughs> yeah, um, but the those fights are really brutal. The level of violence is really high, like much higher than I think I'm used to seeing in comics today or before this time period. Uh, the cruelty is really high. There's a lot of torture. There's really violent threats of upsetting torture. There's a really striking image when they sort of like crucify Drax and they tie him up on these big poles uh, for like all to see, as, you know, as a humiliation thing. Did they? And, I thought he was uh, just stabbed through the head and then thrown off a cliff. Or maybe it's someone else. The, the imagery of the crucified alien body is, like, really uh, stuck with me. Uh, maybe it was Drax crucifying, one, uh, like, one of the Blood Brothers or something. I think that's what it was. Oh, yes, it is. It's, like, Drax crucifying a lunatic, in fact. He chops up lunatic's head, and then he ties his limbs to two little trees. Right, and because was... lunatic, through unspecified until now reasons, could come back from just the head and the body. Which is an interesting idea. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. It's just kind of thrown in there, so that's why I thought he was an older character. I'm like, oh, this must be something that's known already. Uh, But yeah, no, he only shows up in this. But I was just really struck by that. I think um, in the late 80s, this starts to develop. It gets a little bit more egregious in the 90s. But truly, I feel like the early 2000s, Identity Crisis was a comic that was coming out not around this time. Civil War. Yes, Civil War. I just really feel like this uh, Vince McMahon gross-out shock value thing was, like, so hot in comics 
And I really don't like that tone. I think that repelled repelled a lot of people from getting into comics. I still find that that's like a barrier of entry to friends. And I'm like, oh, you should check out comics. And they're like, I don't know. I don't want to read a bunch of people getting tortured and delimbed while old ladies are getting gunned down in the street. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that was, oh, we can do all this now because the comics code is officially has officially been dropped and all that. I think Even the comics it... code officially got dropped in like 2011. <laughs> like it's still after this. No, oh, well... It's, it's, but it was unofficially it's basically dropped. at the point where they've stopped even caring and like yeah where the mainstream stuff is allowed to do this versus kind of stuff that's been you know sequestered in a max line or in vertigo with the big mature imprint they could just be like here's a comic and like throw a little t for teen in the corner yeah, but so my, just my conclusion on that thought is um, I think that that dark vibe is going to persist because we're in the early 2000s, but I actually think Giffen um, more or less does a pretty good job at it. Like, the brutality of the violence and the cruelty helps me sell me on the stakes of the story rather than um, pull me out of it. Yeah, it's not—it doesn't feel like the story is necessarily reveling in the brutality in the same way that, much as I love him, a Garth Ennis comic does. Like yeah. Garth Ennis really revels in that ultraviolence, often for for a point. But here, Giffen's like, "This is a brutal world. The, like these people are very brutal, and he's willing to show it. And they work around it in ways. Sometimes it's, you know, kind of horrifying. But it's not like the bodies were sh- like when the old lady is killed. It's not like we saw her her brains splattered and all of the." The stuff that you might have seen, depending on a, uh, the creative team. It's her glasses fall. There's some blood. It's shown in, in silhouette. It's intense, but it's not as horrible as it could have been. Which yeah, is saying something. It feels like it's something you could see in a Christopher Nolan movie and not like, yeah. a, uh, like a Saw movie. Yeah. Or like an Eli Roth movie. Um, <laughs> But okay, so uh, we get to the end of this, and uh, Cammy persuades Drax to um, to t- take him, uh, take her with him. They go into space together. Uh, she leaves behind her hometown. She leaves behind her alcoholic mom. She leaves behind. Oh uh, no, her mom is life. dead. Um, her mom is dead. Who kills yeah, <laughs> they 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 have a panel where they're, oh, yeah. they're showing the, the body ba- the body bags, and it's like her mom is dead. She doesn't yeah, even. Yeah. I'm looking at that page right now. Yeah, doesn't well, and she doesn't know or care, uh, and like the feelings mutual. But Cammy leaves the whole Earth behind, only leaving a note to just to her pathetic friend Dex says, "I'm going to be happy." And I love that note to end on for Cammy because I don't know if she's going to fulfill that promise, but I love that she, that is what she's pursuing. That's the goal. She's just like, "There's no happiness for me here. I'm going to leave the entire Earth. There's got to be happiness out in the universe." Yeah. I thought that was a cool, strong note to end on. Literally, yeah. a strong note to end on because she leaves it as a note. That that part was strong. I did I did find Pybok just being like, "I'm pressing the jailer button. Please arrest me." A little bit of a uh, okay. I guess you just needed to wrap it up here. Yeah, the pacing is all over the place. It's like maybe they they should have done with less fighting. And I think that's um, a criticism I have of given a lot of the time. Is he really um, likes his fighting? Yeah, or he feels obligated to include it or whatever, but sometimes mm-hmm. it, he doesn't dole it out at a good pace for me. Yeah. Um, I think we, we, we I'm ready to start talking about Annihilation proper. Before that, do you have anything 
left you want to say about Drax? Any more you want to talk about about your frustrations with the artwork? <laughs> no, no, I think I'm good. Uh, but we should take a break, and then we'll come back afterwards to just talk about the actual start of Annihilation. Annihilation Pro. Let's do it. Hello, we're the hosts of the Multiversity Manga Club podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Zach. And I'm Walter. Each month, we pick a manga to read and discuss among ourselves. Past books include Monster, A Silent Voice, and Pokemon Adventures. We also look back on the past month's installments of Weekly Shonen Jump, discussing the highs and lows from the Viz Anthology. We've even discussed notable manga adaptations like Netflix's Death Note. At the end of each episode, we announce next month's book club pick so you can read along with us. We're always open to suggestions for future books as well. So join us on the first Friday of every month on multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. And welcome back, everyone. We are talking about the Annihilation Saga, and we're about to get into the first uh, real issue that's called Annihilation. Yeah. So this is uh, Annihilation Prologue number one. Um, did we give uh, all the credits at the top? I don't think we did. So No, we, uh, didn't, we didn't talk about the second half. Yeah, so Annihilation Prologue number one is a one-shot that was written by Keith Giffen, uh, illustrated by Scott Collins and Ariel Olivetti, colored by June Chung, and lettered by VCs Corey Petit. Um, so, uh, same writer, uh, uh, but a new art team. Uh, how did the art in this one-shot strike you compared to the first? It struck me as, I didn't love it. I still didn't love it, but um, I liked it a lot more than than what whatever was going on in the first one. It felt properly space epic, but it also definitely felt very comics-y uh, in the coloring and, and in the art. Uh, Scott Collins has more recently, he's done a bunch of stuff on The Flash. Um, and I don't know what Ariel Olivetti has done recently, but... That's a name I, I see. That, that is a name that that's I just can't think of this series as. Um, uh, and they have a much more um, traditional '80s '90s superhero style. Yeah, it's, it's very busy, but it's um, usually at least somewhat clear. Um, one thing that's really interesting that they're playing with, and I don't know if this is the uh, artists or the colorists, but they keep on doing these soft focus things. Like, there will be a crowd of spaceships, and a couple of them will be in really sharp focus in the foreground. In the background, it's just this, like, blur of a zillion spaceships flying around. And it's I wouldn't go so far to say it looks good, because um, I think that this is probably an experimental technique. But it's really striking, and I can see it having a big influence on comics today. Yeah. I... I would also agree that I don't necessarily know if it works, but I appreciate what they were going for. And I think that it looked very weird, but it did its job. It got me to focus where they wanted me to focus. And the the shot of just seeing this station blowing up in the background with a few of these weird like bug ships flying, like breaking the page borders and all of that made it feel immense it made it feel immediate and it made it, it made me go oh this is more than just uh you know intro shot to something saying a war is coming it's like oh no this is gonna be this is gonna be bad yeah really sells the carnage and i remember when i saw uh, some of these art techniques 
I had been out of comics for a while, I hadn't been very thoughtful about my comics reading, and this, like, really got me thinking about the art in a big way. Even though now I know it's not the best out, uh, art out there, it just uh, opened my mind to the possibilities in a neat way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so... It's clear. Even, even like, the busy, busy pages, they're clear on what's happening. Which, which is, is important, because what's happening yeah. is so outside of anyone's experience. Mm-hmm. It reminds uh, me... It reminds me of like Jason Burroughs or James Stokoe in, in terms of like, that's a really neat comparison actually. The choices, and how how they can still make stuff clear, while mm-hmm. the pages are still very busy. Uh, not everyone can do, not everyone does that super well. I know like at at Avatar Comics, a lot of people have this the Jason Burrow. There's so much ink on the like uh, to add details. Uh, and he's one of the few people that I've seen there that does it really well. Yeah, um, yeah, and this is not to that level. But I, I no. um, but it was a great uh, introduction to the style for me. So we start off with Thanos. With Thanos, um, you really made me insecure, my dude. Um, <laughs> and sorry, um, man. That's okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with Thanos if it doesn't offend you. Nah. I, um, I just had to know. I'm like, am I doing it wrong? Can I shame him into doing it wrong? I th- Well, we could go watch an Avengers movie, and however Robert Downey Jr. says it is the way to say it. He um, says Thanos. Yeah. Um, but we start with Thanos. He is uh, an Eternal of Titan. He is sort of um, the big bad of the Marvel Universe a lot of the time. I guess what the, what the, the cool, scary thing about Thanos is that he is a really powerful alien space guy, but... It's not enough for him, and he, he'll do anything in his pursuit of power, and he often attains it. So he, uh, even though he's, like, more powerful than most of the Avengers, he's not as powerful as the gods of the multiverse, but he often punches at their weight level through, like, sheer determination and evilness. Yeah. He's one of the few villains that has won multiple times, uh, and, like, the only reason he has lost is the, the age-old hubris. Right, but even is, even when he loses, he accomplished his goals. Like he succeeded, he won. He just didn't think of what it meant past winning. Yeah, and which is a theme I like with Marvel villains. It works for Doctor Doom. It works for Thanos. It works for um, yeah some uh, the, the top tier villains. Just um, I I when he showed up at the end of the first Avengers movie in 2012, and my girlfriend turned to me and said, "Hey, why is that scroll purple?" Which is a really valid thing to say because he's got the same kind of weird wrinkly chin yeah the, the um, george foreman grill chin yeah but he um he wasn't a villain who was that seemed that appealing i think to comics readers uh in the early 2000s like sure he was in the infinity gauntlet and he was in uh the groovy 70 sci-fi stuff but like uh he wasn't a mainstay like dr doom or magneto or loki or red skull um but in th- so this is our introduction to him in this uh, first off, we see him, he's got, he, much like Drax, Thanos has a diminutive female sidekick. In this case, it's an alien pixie creature named Screet. Um, I just looked it up because I was curious. Screet actually was introduced in some sci-fi comics at Marvel in the 90s, and she was a big part of that aforementioned uh, Thanos miniseries that kind of leads him up to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, her deal's not that important. She's just there because Thanos works when he has a non-threatening person to say his evil plans to. But here he's talking with Death, who is in child form, and then says, uh, 
some really uncomfortable things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just go ahead. Tell me how this struck you. Uh, so the first, this is literally the first page of Annihilation Prologue for anyone who has not read it uh, and has made it this far in. Welcome. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she she's like, I'm here to bear with, you know, the standard, I'm death, I, I watch everything kind of stuff. Uh, and then she's like, He's like, something's coming. Or Thanos is like, something's coming. And she's like, yes, something wonderful. Death! I am with him, yes. And learn from this one, Thanos. This one knows me intimately. And I'm like, this is a child. It is uh, not a, I know death is, you know, just a personification. But, like, the choice to have her appear and look like a child and then be like that. I'm like, mm. Especially considering Thanos' whole deal is that he wanted to kill half the universe as a present to court death yeah romantic styles yeah um i guess if i, I just gonna, didn't understand the choice i think there was some explanation in some comic we're not going to read but i guess if i could defend it i like that um it's showing that his devotion to to the death and the personification of death is um is not strictly romantic, but it's like, um, but it's like a true familial devotion thing, and he kind of takes on this, uh, this like guardian. Oh, I didn't really have a problem with that part. It was with death talking about getting in child form, with... knowing someone else intimately, and like and the implication there. I don't know if that was meant to be that way, just because when we find out who it is, and spoilers, it's Annihilus. Uh. Yeah, Nihilus has killed a lot of people, so yeah, intimately I, may not mean, like, knowing Nihilus in the biblical sense. It's for sure a weird decision. She looks a lot more like uh, Death from Sandman on this page yeah. also. Um, which I imagine Sandman was uh, in recent memory. It had re- uh, recently concluded, uh, more About or less. About ten years before. Um, it concluded yeah. in 96, I think. How is that... Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because it's eighty-eight to ninety-six. Jeez, that's a. Uh, I think that I think they. I mean, Sandman content is uh, eternal. I think they had rolled out uh, the Dream Thieves, whatever. Uh, Probably. We're, we're talking about a lot of DC Vertigo stuff on this episode, but that's cool. Um, but okay, so we just we start off with Thanos. He doesn't have a lot to do yet. Um, but it's yeah, this cool. This is the that... only time we see him in this set. Yeah. Um, I also just want to mention, I love, they're doing these subtitles that are, um, the MCU borrowed these, they tell you the planet and maybe some factoids about them, mm-hmm. but they're also doing this thing, Annihilation Day minus, and then the number of days, and then when the Annihilation Wave arrives, it's Annihilation Day plus. Yeah. Uh, so at the beginning, we're at Annihilation Day minus seven, it is a week before this thing arrives, and like, what a good way to build up, like, oh my god, this thing's coming, this thing's coming, this thing's coming, um, it's just, uh, death is noticing, it really is right out the gate selling you on the enormity of these events. Yeah, it's so enormous that they are marking the calendar on it. Yeah, like, and, and like, the calendar is gonna change, right? We had the Gregorian calendar, and now we're gonna have the Annihilant calendar or something. <laughs> Yeah. So after we, we meet Thanos uh, for his one page, as is tradition, to stand around and be menacing and threatening and then disappear for <laughs> forever and a day. <laughs> uh, th- I think that's his MO at this point. Uh, it has continued unto today. 
Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Even into comics coming out in 2020, 2021, that's his thing. Yeah, well, he's too important to do a lot of the dirty work. Although I think you'll be very pleased with uh, some of the ways Thanos gets his hands dirty in the series. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Right now, it seems like he, he has noticed something. Like, he has nothing to do with it. And he's like, ooh, how can I use this? But we get some station, what's it called? The Crunch Energy Cascade in The Kiln Moons. Uh, and there's a bunch of throwaway characters who I'm sure have names and interesting backstories. But I don't know any of them. And the series doesn't care enough because uh, they're all killed after expositing about the AI in these mech critters showing up to bear witness to the destruction that is about to be unleashed in them. Yeah, and... this is some some of this stuff, uh, that Thanos series and some of the other uh, Giffen sci-fi stuff in the early 2000s, you'll see these characters. It's cool that he killed them off to sell the story he really wanted to tell. Yeah, um, but we don't but... know who they are. Yeah, they're not that important. One of them looks like a Breakworlder, which we talked about in our... Um, uh, Astonishing X-Men series. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But, but I think know, what to... I liked about... This scene is very effective. It was a very effective scene, even if I didn't know any of the characters. It sold the immensity of whatever was coming and kind of tied us into the... I'm going to say human, even though a bunch are... They're probably all aliens. But the human drama of the whole thing, because... This one character is dying, and he spends the time to just say, to have the two kind of recite a prayer as he's dying, kind of being like, give me my last rites. Yeah, uh, and that's, I love Marvel stuff like that. I love it when they cut to um, a random, insignificant person uh, and their perspective on events. Marvel Comics d- does that a lot, and it's always fun. Yeah, what and do you he think doesn't of... belabor the whole thing. Right, yeah, well, because he, he's economical with his storytelling. Um, but I wanted to ask you, what do you think of, we'll talk about Annihilus in a minute, but what do you think of the Annihilation wave as like a threat? The, the design of the bug ships, the way that they're portrayed, like, it sounds like you agree with me that they're, um, just immediately cool space villain idea. Yeah, pretty and much. Was- I don't need to know anything else about them. That's they're sure they are kind of a faceless mob, but that kind of feels like the point. Like that is the fear, the fear that this thing could arise. I think it's like the fear of locusts. They show yeah, up and they just they destroy like and eat everything, and there's no way to stop them. Uh, let me take this opportunity, actually. Can I give a little bit of context uh, to you and to our listeners about Annihilus, his deal, what the Annihilation Wave is? Sure. I know he's a classic Fantastic Four villain. Yeah, a very classic Fantastic Four villain. He's a big winged bug guy, and um, he's from the negative zone. Mm-hmm. And the way I understand it is the negative zone is like the underside of uh, the regular Marvel universe. Mm-hmm. I would also go far so far. I don't actually know the cosmology here. I wonder if every universe in the multiverse has its own negative zone or if it's all the same negative zone. I don't know that. Um, I guess we should look to see if there's alternate versions of Annihilus. I'm sure there are alternate versions. Yeah, that makes more sense. Because uh, I but... think the Ultimate Universe had a different negative zone. That's true. Yeah, yeah, you're right about that, actually. That's where the Fantastic Four get their powers from in Ultimate Fantastic Four. But in the 616 universe, the way the—maybe um, I maybe they'll explain this, and I don't remember when. But the positive universe, the regular universe, is expanding from the Big Bang. And as it does that, the negative zone is shrinking. There's only so much, like, room in reality. And so as the—eventually, the negative zone will be um, erased, and that will initiate the crunch when everything bounces back. 
But Annihilus fears that this will not only diminish his territory, this will, like, kill him. If the negative zone is uh, covered by the positive universe, hmm. he's toast. Huh. I wonder at what point the swap actually happens, because it is because you know we are in an infinite universe growing infinitely yeah it might be with no years off it could be like a zillion years off but annihilus has the cosmic control rod which is this weird magic space scepter Mm -hmm. um and that pretty much grants him immortality he uh unless he's separated from the rod and you he's uh basically impossible to kill so he will live for the entire expansion of the universe and the diminishing of his own um, I love Annihilus as a villain. He's very alien and a little bit hard to wrap your head around, and that's what I like about him. Yeah, he feels not different because he is, but it's yeah. It, I the only way to describe it is alien. Like you try to conceptualize Annihilus. And it doesn't fit in an, in an easily describable human, you know, framework. Looking at him, sometimes I come home and I look at my cats and they're cowering because they get scared when they hear my footsteps on the stairs outside. And then they see me and they have and they have this dawning recognition. And I'm just like, am I personifying you? Are you having like a real what – what are your emotions? I, they, it feels like I'm looking at this alien imp- – un- this being I can't understand, and that's what Annihilus is like. Uh, is like my cat. <laughs> I'm also saying this because as we're recording, my cat is stalking around the room, misbehaving, <laughs> and he seems like a real villain right now. Uh, but in that in that same way, when you just like look at an animal, and you're just like, "What are you thinking?" That's the feeling that Annihilus gives me. Yeah. Can you hear him now? He's a. Uh, I actually did just hear him. Yeah, he's I don't know if our too. I don't know if our listeners will be able to. Uh, he doesn't like the way I'm describing him. He's giving me a dirty look. Um, yeah. But uh, okay, then we're introduced to who is going to be our hero for Annihilation and for a lot of this comic actually, and that is Richard Ryder, who is the Earth hero known as Nova. But here he is uh, in space. He has pretty much, as far as we can tell, severed his ties with Earth, and he is just another low-ranking member of the Nova Corps. Um, mm-hmm. You said earlier, Elias, you've read Sam Alexander Nova, but this is probably your major introduction to Richard? Yeah. Uh, I don't know much about Richard other than he has been brought back, and I think more of what I know about him are spoilers probably for the end of Annihilation or something. Um, but the most recent thing I saw, or him in... Um, the new Guardians of the Galaxy series is just Richard Ryder, Nova Corps, colon, PTSD. Yeah. Uh, which well, a so- lot of it stems from what happens in this issue. And, you know, Annihilation Nova. Uh, yeah. Well, and what's cool about that is um, Nova was like a, he was from the 80s and he was like a real spider. He's basically like what if Spider-Man was Green Lantern, I think is my elevator pitch of explaining Nova. Mm-hmm. Because he's like part of this like uh, intergalactic uh, space cops type thing, uh, protectors of the peace. But he's like a real—he's a kid from Long Island. He just seems like a real everyday, you know, white New Yorker. I guess I don't want to paint too broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea—he's supposed to be like an everyman hero who gets put into this situation, and I think that comes across in these early pages when he's uh, flirting with and arguing with the uh, 
uh, his uh, the other Nova Corps members. Yeah, it's Pio and Samara. And good for you. Did you tell that um, uh, mm-hmm. Sam- Samaya Samara was um, she's the, the same species as Yandu? She's a Centurion. She's got the yeah. same red Mohawk thing. I I couldn't remember the name, but yes. Yeah, they're from Alpha Centauri. I love Centauri. the Mohawk. I, I really do like the Centurion design. It's very striking. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, and yeah, right at the beginning, they're having like a Nova Corps meeting. The Nova Corps, uh, yeah, like I said, they're like Green Lanterns. Uh, they're just like space cops, but they're from this planet called Xandar. Um, and there's this thing called the Nova Force, which again is inadequately explained in comics. But from me obsessing over the details, the main word that they use to talk about like what what does the when you have a piece of the nova force what powers does that give you mm-hmm. the word that they're always using is gravimetric and they use these like different words pertaining to gravity so that's kind of how i think about it is the nova force mainly fucks with gravity and like if you're flying through space it's uh, manipulating your gravity to propel you it's using gravity to hold oxygen close enough to you that you can breathe uh, the Stargates are creating black holes from collapsing gravity. Like, all these different weird Nova powers are all gravity-based, as far as I understand, which I mm. think is cool. Um, and we also check in with Drax and Cammy uh, in this sequence, and they look hella different. Uh, just Although a little bit. Well, the I, art style is so different. Oh, yeah. I mean, Drax is once again back to being kind of chunky instead of pretty live. Uh, I think Cammy's entire wardrobe has changed. Yeah, she's got her signature hat. She's got this little red cap that she wears. <laughs> she's got the hat. That's her, that's her character. Yeah, pretty much. But I like. Um, yeah, that's pretty one... much all that happens with her in this in this issue, at least. My, uh, that will, I also think that Giffen's comedy is a little bit lighter in this issue. Like, um, she says to Drax at one point, "I own you." The scroll guy gave you to me, and Drax just goes, "Uh huh." And she goes, "Possession is nine tenths of the law." And then Drax just says, "You can stop saying that." <laughs> and uh, this is when I really like their dynamic, where um, Cammy's the motor mouth and Drax is the stoic, but they're both like total badasses, uh, just like partners in space. I would love a Drax Cammy series. Yeah, that would. I think that that would have been fun. I I was like I was still like okay, all right, Cammy. Why? Why do you care so much about this? Like, given obviously hasn't had that many issues to do this, but I, I don't get why, like the, she's acting the way she is, other than mapping the character trope onto her, especially after like the last page of uh, Drax. Basically, was like, oh yeah, and she also cuts herself. I'm like, all right. Yeah, and she's Did we need like, that detail? Yeah, that's where it kind of crosses the line of good taste for me in terms of this uh, early 2000s darkness. And speaking of, really funny that... Um, so the whole problem here is they want to take Drax to jail, but this resurrection has yeah. Uh, yeah. rebooted his DNA so that when they try to scan him, they're just like, yeah, this is some new being. We've never encountered this guy before. But Drax keeps on implying, like, yeah, I've killed hundreds of thousands of people, but you can't do nothing about it. <laughs> but uh, he's also but I- like, it's like, not by my hand. Yeah, by a, a hand. Yeah. Um, Although he I does lo- keep saying Cree terrorists and uh, on a Skrull settlement, and I haven't read anything before this, so I don't know if that was invented for the series, if that was something that came before and it's actually true, or if he's just using that as an excuse to get around the, the technicality. <laughs> Right, although I like it as, like, a Star Wars Episode Four thing. It's like this story has been going—we're picking up in the middle, and it's okay. 
Yeah. I really yeah. the the line that just like I'm like oh man that has a really different context now it, it lands differently is Drax is like uh, something's wrong Cammy something big is happening and then Cammy goes like nine eleven big and I was just like wow that's five years out oh yeah just like oh, uh, that that lands really differently in 2021 than I think it did in 2006 yeah and especially I think it's meant to be a comedic beat because she says like nine eleven big and then Drax looks at her like what the fuck is that. And she goes, yeah. never mind. Yeah, really weird story moment. Um, and we also get um, our, our first and only look at the Nova Corps meeting. And I think this is cool. I think seeing all the different weird aliens that become Novas is cool. I love the... I, um, the Green Lantern Corps is always really striking because they wear uniforms, but they themselves look so different. Mm-hmm. And I think that the... I love what they do with that with the Annihilation. Uh, with the Annihilation. With the, uh, with the Nova Corps. Um, they all look the the diversity of body types and some of them don't even have bodies some of them are like floating heads with the uniforms kind of painted on yeah and the uh, the scene actually reminds me of uh the the, the senate in in yeah prequel star wars it looks a lot like and that was uh those movies i think when did, what year did episode three come out like i think this is uh right this uh, around the same time as episode three so those are fresh in the mind of the cultural consciousness let's see episode three is 2005 yeah, so this is the year after uh, they, the prequels are concluded. So yeah. that Senate is a fresh image for uh, these artists. Have uh, you but heard it, none the of it tale matters. of Darth Annihilus the Wise? <laughs> well, none of it matters at all because then the Annihilation Wave shows up and kills all of the Nova Corps, kill, blows up the entire planet of Xandar, just like all this shit. Dunzo. Yep. Uh, it was... Yeah, most of the issue is just... Xandar being systematically destroyed by all of these ships and just kind of charting how they do it and how brutal it is. Uh, and we get I, we get this, I, this great moment between Nova and, and uh, Samaya, uh, and then Samaya is brutally murdered and fridged. Oh, yeah, but I, I really felt it. Like, uh, they're charging. It's so unexpected because they're charging together, and they're like, they can make it, they can make it, and then they just she gets... Uh, disintegrated yeah i i counted also i wrote down pretty good fight scene and then i counted 12 whole pages uh so that's that's half the issue it was just a the annihilation wave blowing up this planet and nova uh surviving and and by the end of it he is the last survivor he is the last nova yeah he's pretty much the the only one on the planet actually i think he is the only one left there how he survived life support systems question mark uh, but i think the best single page in this whole one shot um and i really want to give props to uh, collins and olivetti who um uh like we, we've been uh, kind of damning them with faint praise throughout this but yeah. the page of richard's uh like emotional reaction to this his shock and his grief at having experienced this battle just like does so much storytelling there's very little dialogue and it's mostly just him crying and him looking shell-shocked and that really sets up uh that's that sets you up you're like all right i know where this guy is at and the, and now he's gonna go on a whole journey it's a yeah. great introduction to a protagonist and, and like you were saying it, 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 it this page is so powerful basically we're still telling this story uh 15 years later yeah yeah and i mean i i this was the page or the few pages that i remembered most from the issue it's it's him just sitting there with his head in his hands as the 
and kind of the camera pulls back and he just shrinks against the destruction and the dirt and there's nothing alive there's not even a, there's like no green no blues no it's just all brown it's dust and destruction and death and, and that's great. an aesthetic I, that's an aesthetic I'm like not so into most of the time, but it really pops with his blue Nova uniform with the yeah. gold and the red logo, like uh, putting him in this like dreary early 2000s war color palette looks cool when you're a superhero. Yeah, but it, it also helps that other panels aren't colored in that way. Like there's a, there are a lot of blues and the fire pops with reds. Like it doesn't have the usual everything is the same dull, washed out, faded colors. Uh, yeah, total. No, totally. So I, I just wanted to. After we uh, were like, eh, they're okay. They, when it counts, I really think that the art team uh, came through and sold the the big important moments. Mm-hmm. Um, I just briefly, we don't have to linger on this because we're gonna talk a lot more about this next time. But uh, Ronan the Accuser shows up for like a second. Um, I think there's a bunch of characters who are my favorite in the Annihilation Saga who are really cool. But the way Ronin comes across in this, from beginning to end, his arc, his saga, Ronin is my maybe my number one favorite. I had a Ronin the Accuser poster like years before the movie came out of him oh, wow. um, forging a new hammer with a bigger hammer. It was the it was a cover of one of these issues. Ronin like uh, we just check in with him and I just like get ready for Ronin to be fucking cool because Ronin's fucking cool. Damn. Um, we also briefly and and Ronin is like ready to go. I think um. He's having some political strife, and he's just like, wait, there's a war? You all work for me now. And everyone's like, I guess we work for Ronan. And then <laughs> we, we also check in with Silver Surfer, and he's just, like, crying by himself in the background, not doing shit about this. Um, yeah. Because that's Silver Surfer's MO. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, but the issue concludes with we finally actually see Annihilus, who I imagine if you were— um, if you just picked up this comic blindly in 2006, you knew it was called Annihilation. They're keep talking about the Annihilation wave. They kind of they're fighting bugs, but this is it. Still, it feels like a reveal. Like, oh, Annihilus is behind all this. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah, and I think if you didn't even know who Annihilus was, uh, and you thought this was his first appearance, what a first appearance it would be. <laughs> Right, he's his font is purple and red and white, and he shouts, "All serve Annihilus! Annihilus is the will and the way, and will not be denied!" In this great final page splash, I, I really like the jaw. I don't know what it is about the way his jaw <laughs> fits into the face. The whole design on this page is fantastic, and he's the right amount of menace and like comic book silliness but you still want the toy the perfect mix you still want to buy the toy of this guy it looks like it would be so much fun oh yeah and like you could just buy the toy and then throw him at whatever you (laughs) wanted (laughs) now i gotta ask you um i am reading all of this in um i have most of this in paperback trade and i have an older edition of the trades um nowadays when you buy this um it's there's a there's more issues Per, you know, I think I have a three parts, and I think if you bought it today, it's in two parts. Yeah, the, com- the complete edition versus book one, two, and three. Yeah, yeah. Um, but my trade has these amazing Xandar Worldmine Novacore files. Mm-hmm. Do you yep. have these in the version? I'm, Where, how I'm you reading read from the same trade. Uh, on, uh, are you reading just digital? digitally. Yeah. Um, 
So I don't, we don't need to talk about this, like, because this is just a bunch of lore, but I love when Marvel includes stuff like this in the trade. I, uh, Hickman's data pages really evoke this feeling. It breaks up the pacing in a really nice way when you uh, want to sit with the emotions of a scene, but you still want to give out information. And yeah. just, like, I'm the kind of comic book nerd, and I know there's a lot of us out there, who loves, like, these Wikipedia entries that are written by the writers. There's all these drawings of different Nova Corps members in their different uniforms and explaining what the different ranks mean. I just, like, um, there's such a market for this, and I feel like uh, it happens way less often than it should. <laughs> It's yeah. also a great way, this is how, I didn't know who Thanos was when I read this, but when I saw that um, Thanos had threat level universal, I was just like, that guy sounds like a big deal. It just, uh, it, it, it's a great way of catching you up. I'm looking yeah. at, the, there's a map of the Root of the Annihilation Wave, and it also explains how the Shi'ar are, are in a separate galaxy from the Milky Way galaxy, and that the Kree um, occupy the entire Greater Mag Magellanic Cloud. And as, like, an astronomy nerd who loves Mars rovers and Hubble telescope pictures and shit, just, like, love um, how big and sprawling the Marvel Space Universe feels. And that's kind of something that got lost, too, with the movies, is you're always just going to a random planet, and they're just like, this is Jerillion, the planet of uh, these purple dudes. And it's just like, <laughs> you feel like there's infinite planets out there with all... But in a way that doesn't feel specific. It just feels like at any point they can introduce any color of being from the color wheel with a stupid name and no impact. And this really um, makes the setting feel like there are distances between these places, there is geography, um, and I, we can have battle plans and strategy because, like, an invading force will have to cross this uh, constellation or this nebula first. Yeah. Um, really helps uh, grounds the conflict. Uh, that's all I have to say. I'm sorry. I'm going on. I'm, I'm as you know, I love this shit. Yeah, I, but I, I understand that. I like how all of those little data page additions, they're fun. They're they're for a specific kind of fan, and if you don't like it, just skip right over it. It has no effect on the on the story itself, but it can help deepen your understanding of it, and you know. Sometimes you'll find out fun information, and sometimes it provides context you would need that uh, if you tried to put it in the story, it would just make the whole thing feel overstuffed. Right, totally. Um, which brings us to the final four issues of this, if you're ready to go. Annihilation Nova. Yeah, let's do it, so that we can hopefully keep this under two hours. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's... So Annihilation Nova uh, is a four-issue miniseries. It is written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning. It is illustrated by Kev Walker inked by Rick Magyar and colored by R Brian Reber again and uh, lettered by VC's Corey Petit who has lettered all of these. Um, so for a little bit of context, uh, Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning are frequent collaborators and they are British as fuck. Um, they uh, started off doing 2000 AD together which is the seminal long-running British anthology comics magazine. Um, mm -hmm. And in the 90s, Marvel decided to reboot their Marvel UK line of comics, which I could talk about at great length. They're very cool. I will not do that here. Uh, but they were the Marvel UK line in the 90s. A lot of British Marvel writers writing today grew up on Ab Abnett and Lanning's comics. So like mm -hmm. uh, Kieran Gill and Al Ewing, all those guys, uh, Abnett and Lanning was like their, uh, of their youth. Mm -hmm. um, Abnett has a really long history. He's of doing uh, good work in licensed properties, both in comics and in novels. He's written more Warhammer books than you could count. He's written so Doctor many. Who stuff. He's written Tomb Raider shit. Just like uh, this guy is very is a 
crazy prolific, and he um, must make good money doing this and must love doing it. Uh, the two of them, uh, Abnett and Lanning together, also co-created Resurrection Man, who is an underrated DC character. Um, but sadly, their partnership dissolved in sometime in like 2013-2014, uh, depending on who you ask, um, shortly after they conclude the Annihilation Saga. Uh, and they've always said it's, it ended over personal reasons, and it sounds really fraught, actually, but they always talk about each other in public respectfully and professionally, and it does sound like they had some personal... It sounds like a really rough divorce that they don't like talking about, mm-hmm. um, which makes me sad because their work together is um, becomes the spine of this entire huge run of comics. They write most of the issues. Giffen moves out, and they become the whole thing. Yeah, um, I didn't even know that Giffen was a part of this. Right, you thought of it as... people describe it, it's Abnett and Lanning's Annihilation stuff. Yeah, and I think um, it was Giffen's... This Annihilation series was Giffen's idea, but by the end of the next big series, which is called Annihilation Conquest, Abnett and Lanning are doing almost everything. I wonder if Giffen got it started and then went, you know what? These guys, they got good ideas. I've kind of, I've said my stuff. I did, I did what I wanted to do and then moved on. Yeah, I don't know uh, the circumstances under which Giffen leaves, but I think it's ultimately for the best. I really like Giffen's sci-fi, but Abnett and Lanning, um, as I'll talk about in a moment, their tone is really cool and was, I think, unlike a lot of things happening in comics. And I actually think that this is the uh, first step we have to getting that more recognizable Marvel action comedy style. Huh. Um, I'll talk about that more in a second when we talk about Nova more specifically. I just also want to mention that uh, Kev Walker is the illustrator. He is also British as fuck. You're reading that early Hellblazer right now, and he did a bunch of those issues in the 80s and the 90s. Yeah, uh, under Jamie Delano. Yeah, with Jamie Delano, which was the earliest uh, issues of Hellblazer. Um, Kev Walker also did a bunch of Judge Dredd, and he is a frequent collaborator of Abnett and Lanning for their British books. So just, like, very familiar to them. That The three of them are, like, a real powerhouse uh, creative team. That's pretty rad. Uh, and I just wanted to say, the inker, uh, if anyone read, if, if anyone read my uh, question uh, coverage over the summer, or, or over last yeah. summer... Uh, I read Rick, that. Rick Magyar was one of was the inker on I think the first twenty issues of the book, uh, and then moved on. But his his inking on on Cowan's pencils was some something special. It was totally. very good. Yeah, I, uh, I I wish I understood inking better. I I, I try to learn all the time. Um, to like uh, describe what I like about it, but I know yeah. I like this inking a lot. Yeah, it's hard to tell sometimes if you're not the 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 best way to recognize whether or not one person's inks help is by comparing the penciler across multiple inkers. <laughs> like that's that really makes... the only way, at least for me, that I can tell when it's the inking and not the penciling that's doing that, like doing some of the heavy lifting, like. For example, I think uh, John Romina Jr. with Klaus Janssen, they've been a team for forever and a day, but I think Janssen's the wrong inker for modern JRJR. Anytime Danny Mickey takes over, it looks so much better. Yeah, and see, this is uh, this is how Elias educates me and makes me a better comics reader, people, because uh, my knowledge of this is inadequate, but I'm trying to <laughs> rectify that a little bit every day. Um, Annihilation Nova starts off um, being narrated by a character who we're basically being introduced to, and that is Worldmind, who is a um, 
sentient computer AI thing made up of all the greatest Zendarians in their planet's history. Um, we are introduced by Worldmind saying what's going to become their uh, catchphrase, which is attention. It is critical that you pay attention at this time. Is uh, becomes Worldmind's whole thing, which I love. I just every time that comes up, I smile now. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll, we'll see after uh, like fifty issues of Nova how you feel. We'll see. So far, so far, it's still. It's definitely, it's not annoying to me, but I see why Nova is annoyed. Right, but that's <laughs> a fun And I appreciate di- that. that. It's a fun dynamic between the two of them. Yeah. And I, this is, I guess, I don't have no a better place to talk about it, but I just, I really like, um, it's, um, you, you get the heavy sci-fi war story, there's like refugees and there's casualties and that stuff all feels real, but the, there's jokes and the character stuff, um, is a little lighter than it was under Giffen a second ago. And um, that feels like the MCU. Like, the, the patter between the characters feels like the movies to me. And mm-hmm. and the world mind's dynamic with Nova reminds me so much of, like, Tony and Jarvis in the movies. Um, yeah. You, you have, like, yeah, Jarvis, an AI Jarvis as in the AI, not Jarvis as in... The butler. The butler. Although they never have the butler in the movies, do they? No, just in the... Well, no, he makes a cameo in uh, Endgame. Oh yeah. Oh no, no. He was in, he was in Agent Carter. Yeah, and then he uh, shows up when they're in the seventies in Endgame. Yeah, with Howard Stark. Whatever. We promised we wouldn't talk about the movies over much. So, um, yeah. So uh, basically, these four issues are mostly Richard battling his own feelings, which uh, get externalized early on as he sees these two bugs eating the corpses of the fallen Nova guys. I really like that we went from that brown smokiness to um, everything is just like this washed out snow now. Yeah. And I like how they actually explain it. They're not just like, oh, it's a different, it's something different we don't need to do. It's like, oh, it's fallen away from the sun. It got cold. Yeah, and And I love sci-fi stuff like that. Yeah. That's so fun. Um, But so early on. It's an excuse to also give us a little bit something different to look at and probably also save the colorist a little bit of work. And it works because the main characters are so vibrant, are blue and gold and green and purple, that uh, it pops up against the, the blankish background. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is a, it's really about Richard dealing with his feelings about this. And I love—I'm going to insistently calling him, keep calling him Richard, by the way, because otherwise we'd call him Rick, which is weird, or Dick Ryder, which is real unfortunate for a superhero <laughs> name. Um, I didn't even consider that. I can't believe that. That, that is jo- very unfortunate. That joke is hanging there all the time, and I'm just like, every Marvel writer who doesn't write that joke is either a hero or a villain. I haven't decided which. <laughs> um, but yeah, Richard battles his own feelings, um, and I just like that journey feels really real to me, and I love following that. He downloads Worldmind into him. And, and this before is- he does, though, he has this great exchange, and I, it is the most relatable thing in the world where he just goes, Garth and Saul, Dad. And I'm like, oh, this is like calling your teacher mom. <laughs> yeah, Worldmind calls him out, and he's just like, don't worry about it. And I love uh, what a fun thing where he has all these idioms, and he's like, a, you know, he's just like a talks like a regular dude. And then this computer's like, that does not compute. That's always fun. Yeah, it's always a fun dynamic. And we uh, learned also, about Garth you... and Saul. Yeah. Uh, did you notice? I don't know how you feel about this. Whenever he takes off his helmet, it turns into like fabric. Yeah, I I I loved that. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> but the so first time cool. it happened. I was like, "What is he doing?" He throws it at Drax. This is later, but 
No, he does it before he uh, absorbs the Nova Force. He pulls off the helmet when he's in the the computer room, and he just like crumples it up in his fist. Oh and it yeah! Just, it looks like he's holding like an old sock. It doesn't look like a metal notice. helmet. I didn't even notice. I was just like, oh, he pulled his helmet off. But then I'm like, what's he holding in his hand? Ah, it doesn't matter. Just he's what a cool bu- visual. He's too busy calling Worldmind dad. Yeah. Um, but but then when he uh, downloads Worldmind, the first thing that you notice is he's got his new Nova costume, which is his costume to this day. What do you think of this upgraded costume? He chonk. Yeah, it's pretty chonk. I love it. But also because I'm used to it. Like, I like there's these lights that are always glowing from him. It looks a lot more armory, which I think makes sense because he's flying through space and he's in war all the time yeah. rather than, like, a, a jumpsuit. Um, but the one thing about it that people always make fun of that, like, yeah, that's silly, is he's got all these spikes on his joints, on his elbows and knees, and it just yeah. looks like if he ever, like, reached up to stretch while he was wearing the uniform, he would just uh, impale himself. He, he needs to look cool, dude. He needs to yeah, look... Yeah, I think... Yeah. I think he does I, look cool. It, it, it's also... I don't love the trend in superhero costumes. This is especially true of basically every single live-action version uh, of making them look just like military stuff. Yeah, it's, I don't think it's they're, a good trend they're, either. Yeah, I I especially don't like it. Like in, The Arrowverse does this a lot. And it's I'm like you had such cool costumes, and you reduce it to here's some leather with some green, and sometimes it looks really cool. Like I do like like I liked Arrow's costume, and I think they did a great job with like the Flash. But some of the other costumes, I'm like, why? Like some like uh, a lot of the Supergirl stuff, a lot of Supergirl yeah. incidental char- characters like Guardian, and I'm like, you could have given them something that's more than just you know camo gear or Kevlar. I'm like, spruce it up. This is Metropolis. Lean in. Um, yeah, the reason it works better for me here than Metropolis is because it's the beginning of a war story. So this yeah. is his, new, his like new uniform where he's going to be leading armies now. Yeah, so he needed little... the armor. He's He is upgraded into something that needs to be a little bit more tank-like. Yeah, so I, I just think it's a little story justified. But... Yeah. um. So Richard, after um, having, like, a whole freakout, he's crying, he's killing as many bugs as he can. Worldmine is like, calm down, you gotta keep your eye on the mission, your mission is to protect me. If, if Xandar isn't gonna be a thing anymore, Richard, then it's your job to protect me, the Worldmine, because I am the living history of Xandar. Yeah. And Richard's like, yeah, I know that, but I have a lot of feelings. And Worldmine's like, don't care, feelings are not a real reason to do things. Um, but in, in through this freakout, Richard encounters uh, the only other two survivors we see from this attack, Drax and Cammy. Yeah, which I, I guess they survived somehow. I think they were in an escape pod and that crashed down on, on the planet. Uh, sure. Before that, we get this one-page interlude of just cutting to Annihilus. I love this page. Yeah, Because it's just Annihilation Wave, Annihilus' command section, and it's dark and they're just these two ships silhouetted against the the stars you can almost barely tell that they're there which is perfect for for the mood and then it's just a half page of annihilus sitting in this bug chair and he's just like what was that and then yeah, we cut it, to to rider i'm like oh that's a good that's a good way of cutting to a villain and like trying to start start laying the the groundwork to involve them yeah, and I also love in Marvel that like when really powerful people flex their powers, um, 
just like mm-hmm. the, ever, the, the equally powerful people can like feel it. Yeah, it's like it's like the force. Uh, Richard meets Drax and Cammy, right? And this is where the patter starts up, where Drax is being gruff and Richard. Oh, and we forgot to mention that along with the World Mind, uh, Richard now has the entirety of the Nova Force. So Nova Corps members get like a little sliver of the Nova Force. Mm-hmm. But uh, now that there are no more Nova Corps members, the entirety of the Nova Force is just like within Richard, and it's burning him up. One, no one man should have all that power. Yeah, it sounds about right. Drax and Richard have like typical superhero misunderstanding stuff, and they're posturing and they're fighting. Um, the cover has uh, Richard punching Drax in the face, and Drax just like really gruesomely stabbing Richard through the leg with one of his knives, which is a real striking image. And none of that happens in the comic, but that is the uh, that is kind of the underlying. You know, th- that's what it feels like. Yeah, and it's a, it's a very feelingsy issue in a very feelingsy miniseries. So, but um, I like that the dynamic already is uh, Richard is discovering he's got greater power than he knew. And then here comes Drax, like this gruff mentor guy. And he's like, I can teach you to control the power. But then it, it's kind of like, uh, maybe Drax is not the best mentor. He's all about uh, tough love and death threats. <laughs> yeah. It's like, if you don't figure this out, I will kill you. I really like there's a comedy bit where... Um, Richard is explaining uh, how Worldmind works to Drax, and Drax isn't getting it. And then he's like, you know what? You just talked to Worldmind. He pulls off the helmet, and it gets all floppy, and Drax puts on the helmet. Yeah. Hello? No, this is Drax, because I'm wearing his hat, because he gave it to me. <laughs> yeah, just, uh, and that's what I mean by the Abnett landing comedy, like, really lands for me. I thought that's a funny bit, and that would be perfectly in line with the tone of every Marvel movie. Yeah. That, that and Sweet Glutes. And he makes it, um, it becomes a catchphrase. Like, every time he meets someone, Drax is just like, because his hat told me to do it. And that's such a funny Drax bit. I could see oh my Dave Batista doing the same joke, and it would be amazing. Um, yeah. But Drax, through his gruff mentorship, coaches Richard on opening Stargates, which lets them uh, wormhole around the universe. And they go to another planet, which is in the, um, which is nine light years from Xandar, but it's still in the path of the Annihilation Wave. And they meet... Wendell Vaughn, aka Quasar. Uh, are you Quasar? Quasar? Uh, you do that with the the softer Q. Yeah, that's how I've said, that. That's how I've heard like the type of star. Yeah, well, I'll go with you know, the one that that uh, dims and and brightens in luminosity. I'm happy to call him Quasar. Whatever. Uh, what is your? Do you know Quasar? No, I actually thought he was Hyperion when he first showed up. <laughs> Um, Quasar's kind of a, a classic, uh, Marvel space hero guy. He uh, is named Wendell Vaughn. He's like your typical square-jawed good guy. He was on the Avengers for a little bit, I think, in the 80s. He's got, his powers come from his bracelets, which are called the Quantum Bands, which make him mega powerful. But, uh, I don't think we need to take a lot of time to, like, understand, uh, Quasar, because, uh, he doesn't make it very long in this. No, he makes it... One, two issues, technically. Shows up on the last page of one, dead by the end of the next. Yeah, no, he's, he, he dies in four. He makes it through all of three. Well, good for him, I suppose. Um, <laughs> That's longer than Samaya. <laughs> true. What I, the important thing about Quasar is just, like, you get the vibe that he's very powerful and very good and very well-regarded. He's like the Superman of Marvel space. 
And the fact that they're killing them off is both like a big, like, uh-oh, Nihilus is serious business, but also, um, as you'll see, his legacy and rallying around his cult of personality becomes a, a touchstone for a lot of these characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you find yeah. Quasar's introduction to be anything, or like, whatever? He's big space guy with big space powers. He shows up, he saves the heroes, and he's there to kind of be... Uh, a bit of a stick in the mud, but to ultimately help the heroes. He, yeah, he's he's not much of anything. When if, if we're being honest, when the action starts, I think uh, I don't always love Kev Walker's faces and his haircuts and stuff. But when the action starts, yeah, Nova teaming up with Quasar to fight the Annihilation Wave as a duo is the best sequence of any of the issues we read for today. Um, I don't know. I really like that that one page where we first see the the wormhole. Uh, that's I, that's pretty cool too, but like, uh, I really believe that Nova is like jacked up with the Nova Force, and he's way more powerful than Quasar. Just like, uh, the the two heroes just blasting through endless legions of bug ships uh, is incredibly cool to me. Yeah, and all all the fire going through space between them. Um, I, also, I I guess I, I didn't really think about this when I was reading it, but I love the setup that it seems like. Uh, Drax is not going to be his Nova's mentor, but he really needs one. And then Quasar's like, it'll be me, no problem. And it's not him, because when they get to the flagship, Annihilus just, like, vampire drains Quasar right off the bat. Oh, yeah. Just inhales him like, uh, like soup. Yeah, which sounds good right now. Um, which uh, throws Nova into a fury. He gets in, like, a sucker punch at best, but now you're— just like that thing you got to do at the beginning of the story where the villain's got to come, he's got to show that he means business. Killing Quasar and then like uh, fighting Nova to a standstill after that big fight was just like such good storytelling through action to me. It's the kind of thing Steven Spielberg movies do really well. Mm-hmm. Or Star Wars for that matter. Yeah. Lucas Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. He's that whole. I mean, there's not much to say about a fight. Um. But I guess just that. I was I was thinking I'm like how can. How, what more details can I add? And I'm like, uh, there really isn't much because it's a bunch of ships. It's got a lot of cool turning points because, you know, you've got Nova. He's trying to fight. He's trying to figure out because he's fighting against the Nova Force. He doesn't want it to drive him completely bonkers or or to, you know, have him blow up because it's too much for him. And... He's kind of he's fighting with that, and he's fighting with World Mind, and he's like, World Mind, you can't just keep verbally telling me these things after going attention. It is critical because <laughs> it takes too long. He's like, just beam it into my head, and World Mind's like, what? Just beam it into my head. And then again, like, um, this is the superhero stuff I like. I really get Nova's abilities more than Quasar, and um, the advantage to yeah. having this computer who can like uh, uh, enhance your mind in that way. I think that's all. Uh, I love superpowers in my superhero comics, and those are cool, interesting superpowers that I can understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we end our story with Quasar is dead. Nova uh, fought the bad guy but was defeated. And um, he wakes up on one of the refugee ships that he was protecting with Drax and Candy. And just like, they're refugees. They're not soldiers. They have, they're not fighting back. They are fleeing, and all seems hopeless. Yeah. And while they may have saved the planet and perhaps some, maybe 50%, I don't know how many, of the ships that they were able to save. Because that was really what the the mission 
became. Like, they realized very early on, once Annihilus actually showed up, that they wouldn't be able to repel the invasion from the planet. All they could do was stall long enough to get as many of the ships as away as possible. And they save millions, they lose millions. Like, the the numbers here are un, un, inconceivable. It's a planetary scale. Planetary scale, exactly. Um... And so we end on this kind of note of hopelessness, but it being a superhero comic, that's a great note because uh, through that hopelessness, you know that the triumph is going to be even greater. Yeah, and we even end on... It, it's not really hopeless in the same way. It's more It's more like the end of Empire Strikes Back where you are at the low, the hero's been defeated, but and like things seem bad, but they also are like clearly hinting that... like. They're going to go and they're going to do something, like, but there isn't a clear path to victory. They just like, they need to regroup. Yeah. Uh, it even ends, it ends actually perfectly on your, on the two themes that, that I've kind of been covering, which is the purpose of destruction and taking action. Because the final two panels are teach me to fight teach me to destroy from from richard and drax goes yeah and richard goes yeah turns out it's critical i take action now yeah and what a great um i think that's such good writing it just like brings together all the catchphrases and all the abilities of these characters and now you can see the foundation of what's going to turn into the guardians of the galaxy Mm -hmm. um yeah not right away and not necessarily in this but like big space heroes having to team up to deal with these big threats, you get why they have to exist and you get what they're going to have to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Elias, so this is the end of our first Annihilation book. I think it's going to get much stronger from here, but uh, what are you, what's your feelings on the series so far? I mean, so far, I definitely liked, once we actually got into the stuff with Annihilus and everything, a lot more than uh, whatever was going on in uh, Blood Brothers v. Pybok v. Drax in Alaska but I'm excited to I where this is going I don't really know but I know it's going to be in equal parts fun and just like it's definitely going to get pretty dour at points. Well, you're a big space opera person. You love Empire Strikes Back, yeah. and you love Babylon 5, and you love Star Trek stuff. I feel like, uh, yeah, yeah, you, you get the vibe that we're going for here. Yeah, I get the vibe. So next time, we're going to be reading um, the second book of Annihilation, Annihilation Book 2, and the issues that that includes are Annihilation Ronin, numbers 1 to 4, Annihilation Super Scroll, number 1 to 4, and Annihilation Silver Surfer, number one to four. And I think this is going to be kind of a mixed bag for you, Elias, because it's going to, a lot of it's similarly low scale, like the Drax stuff. Yeah. Very focused, but I love those Ronin issues. I think Ronin's super cool. And I, if you like Silver Surfer, those are pretty cool as well. The Super Scroll stuff, I have no memory of, so I'm, I'm excited to revisit. <laughs> um, but then Annihilation Book 3 is where it's going to pop off for you, because Annihilation Book 3 is when we're in the Space War. There's trenches and battle lines and strategies and teams, and oh, man. This is how you win the Space War. Yeah. It's critical that so, you pay attention at this time. Before we get... <laughs> God damn it. Uh, before we get there, I just wanted to confirm. Super Scroll, this is Clert, not Pybok. Yes, Pybok is the power scroll 
Kalert is the super okay. scroll. Okay. Uh, for anyone curious, we will talk about Clert next time. Oh, yeah. Uh, but you have seen him before. Certainly. Um, yeah, and I think that about does it for our first part of Annihilation. I am so yep. excited. I, we're going to have tons more to say. This is going to be excellent. And if anyone is reading this in trade, this is collected in Annihilation Book 2, uh, which is the original printing. I think it might be split between... Uh, I'm just double checking the. I think it might be split between the two volumes. Yeah. Of the complete collection. But if you let's see, if you want to follow the no, they are both these these miniseries are all collected in the first half and the first complete collection. So if you are reading what we read for this one in that, um, finish that book. Oh shit! No, it's split. It's Silver Surfer and Super Scroll in the first one. Well, regardless. <laughs> and Ronin, I think, in the next one. It's going to get even harder trade-wise as we move forward and they get to the yeah. series. Just know that the three miniseries we're reading for next time are Annihilation Ronin, Annihilation Super Scroll, and Annihilation Silver Surfer. Um, it, yep. In the meantime, Elias, if folks want to uh, follow your takes uh, leading up to then, is there a good place they can do that? Yes, they can find me... Somewhere, somewhere, somewhere. They can find me over on Twitter at Quetzal-ish, Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. Uh, that is all a code to be broadcast into the middle of space to save us from the next, next Annihilation Storm. Uh, and you can find me also writing here at multiversitycomics.com. Um, this is going to be... This is going to be a lot. Oh, it's going to be so I'm much. Looking at our, I'm looking at our... our reading list uh buckle in everyone i'm very excited to be doing this oh my god i'm excited that you're excited uh i'm on twitter also you can find me at rambling underscore moose you can find me on uh multiversity comics as well i think there's going to be a lot of annihilation talk in the future and i'm excited to have it with you sir and for anyone who is wondering well where is baseline x if they were coming if you were coming here to hear us talk about that we will be shifting to a more text format uh, for for that segment because I don't want to give up putting my list together every month uh, and giving it up. But, yeah. No, sir. We will see you all on the wider webs. All right. See you. Goodbye.